Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness, so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for forty days and forty nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's Son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him to the holy city and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, Again, it's written, Don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, Go away, Satan, because it's written, You will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him. And the angels came and took care of him. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we reflect upon it, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. There is a sense in which the season of Lent mirrors the wandering of Jesus Christ through the wilderness. Like our Lord, we fast for 40 days, although we have cheat days on Sundays, because every Sunday is a feast day in honor of the resurrection. So as we go through this season of fasting, we are being more intentional than usual about avoiding our sinful practices. No matter the size of our fast or its substance, I'm sure that there will be times that we will all feel the pull of temptation. That voice in our heads that whispers to us, well, just this one time won't hurt too much. Therefore, what I want us to think about this morning is how Jesus faces his temptations after 40 days and nights of fasting so that we can understand how his actions serve as an example to us. Now our story glosses over the period of fasting to bring us to the moment when Jesus is the most vulnerable, right at the end of his time in the wilderness. Some translations tell it that he was hungry, but our translation today punches things up by saying he was starving. It is in this moment of great need that the devil shows up to taunt Jesus and to tempt him. And before we go any further, we need to unpack what it means for the devil to show up. Many of us probably have a very personified image of the devil. It may be that 
we imagine him with red skin, cloven hoofs, a tail, and pitchfork. Or it may be that we picture him a little more human, but maybe like a smooth talker who appears just a little too slick, a little too polished. Or perhaps somewhere in between those two poles is where our mind goes as we picture Jesus encountering the devil. But no matter what we picture, it is probably distorting our imagination of this moment. In the Greek, the word that we translate as devil means something more akin to the slanderer, the accuser, or the enemy. It doesn't necessarily refer to a specific person with a specific name so much as it is a substantive adjective. That is to say, it's a word that is both identifying and describing a kind of person. To help us understand what I mean, consider another place where Scripture does something similar. When Christ says, the meek shall inherit the earth, he's not identifying a specific person named the meek, but identifying the kind of person who will inherit the earth. So as we go through the events of Christ's temptation, I want you to do your best to set aside whatever image first came to mind when you heard that he's confronted by the devil. In fact, as I think about this story, one of the most useful descriptions that I've encountered comes from Brian Zahn's book, Beauty Will Save the World. Here is how Zahn sets the scene. At the end of these 40 days, we are told the devil came to him with three temptations. But how did the devil come? Not as an overt creature clearly distinct from Jesus, for then there would be virtually no temptation. Satan didn't come strolling across the wilderness and say, hello, I'm the devil, I'm here to tempt you. Where shall we start? No, the darkness is much more subtle than that. I'm sure the darkness is much more subtle than that. I'm certain the temptation came to Christ in the same way that it comes to all of us, in the form of dark thoughts that somehow enter our mind, thoughts that we don't always immediately recognize as originating with the powers of darkness. And here is what I think Zond gets so right in that description. Temptation isn't tempting unless there is something appealing about it. If evil were easy to identify, there would be a lot less of it in the world. I can't speak for all of you, but I know that in my case, I've never been confronted by a cloven-hoofed man wielding a pitchfork trying to convince me to do something I know is wrong. I have experienced that voice that works its way into your mind to try and rationalize away any reluctance. That voice in seminary that would show up every now and then and convince me, it's okay to skip Sunday worship. You're in seminary. Don't you spend enough time thinking about God in the church? I've experienced that voice when it comes from friends trying to get you on board with something questionable, who convince you to skip out on a job that you're being paid to do so that you can go grab Chinese food for dinner and who then steal a paper lantern on their way out of the restaurant. These are the faces of the accuser, the slanderer, the enemy. So perhaps when you read this story in the future, or as we are discussing it now, try to imagine the enemy 
as someone that you trust. See how much more real the temptation becomes if we imagine Jesus wrestling with these questions, if he's hearing the voices of his friends who have encouraged him on his path to ministry. Which brings us to those temptations. What is it that the enemy offers to Jesus in his moment of vulnerability? What possible futures does he show to the Messiah about to begin his ministry? First is a pretty immediate temptation. If you're hungry or starving, why not just turn these stones to bread? In other words, if you have the power to take care of your own material needs, why not do it? And implicit in that accusation is a question about the kind of Christ that Jesus will be. If you are able to feed everyone, why would you not do that? As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus falls back on Deuteronomy to rebuke his tempter by saying, People won't live on bread alone, but by every word spoken by God. Now, there is a way that we could read this that over-spiritualizes Jesus' response. We could see this as saying that so long as we tend to people's souls, that's all that really matters. But Jesus doesn't go that far. What he does say is that the material things alone are not enough. It's not a true kind of life to have a full stomach but an empty soul. The second temptation then is, well, if you're God's son, then prove it. Throw yourself from the top of the temple and let the angels keep you safe. This temptation provides a dark foreshadowing of what is to come on Good Friday when Jesus is mocked as he hangs from the cross. Then, as now, tempters will say to him, save yourself from harm if you are the son of God. If you want us to believe that you are who you say you are, then prove it to us. Save yourself. But again, Jesus returns to the word of God to rebuke this temptation by saying, do not test the Lord your God. It's not that Jesus doesn't have the ability or the power to call upon the hosts of angels but the true strength doesn't come from the exertion of power. If God is to be revealed through Jesus as the Christ, then God cannot overpower us into belief. Finally, the third temptation that is set before Jesus is the temptation to place worldly authority above service to God. The tempter offers Jesus power over every kingdom of the planet, but Jesus recites for his tempter the words of God that say, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Maybe the power to rule the world sounds like a temptation to you. Maybe it sounds like too much responsibility. But for Jesus, it must have presented a temptation because the prophet's had long been proclaiming that the coming Messiah would rule over the nations. And now the tempter was giving Christ that opportunity. Worship me and all this is yours. 
This is not a temptation unique to Christ, by the way. There have been plenty of politicians and leaders through history who have succumbed to this particular temptation. Worship me, says Mars, the god of war, and all this will be yours. Worship me, says Mammon, the god of money, and all this will be yours. But Christ knows there is no shortcut to the kingdom of God, that only those who remain faithful to God will be welcomed as good and faithful servants. So to sum up the three responses that Jesus has to temptation, first, know that the word of God is the source of true life. Second, know that true power is found in humility rather than in strength. Third, know that God's will is the only will that we are to serve. So as we walk with Jesus, I hope that we will keep these lessons in mind. I hope, too, that we will find ways to act on these lessons. It is for this reason that we will be participating in communion every week during Lent. We will be attending to what John Wesley describes as our duty to constant communion. By participation in the sacrament, as often as we are gathered together, we will be ensuring that we are filled with that spiritual food of grace that Christ calls upon in rebuking the first temptation. Our confession before God and one another will call us to the humility demonstrated by Christ in rebuking the second temptation. And we will be obeying the commandment of Christ to remember him through the sacrament, thereby demonstrating the obedience used to rebuke the third temptation. Additionally, it is my sincere hope that you will find more time during the season of Lent to be in study of the scriptures. This will necessarily require you to fast from something else that occupies your time, but it will help you move deeper into God's self-revelation. I encourage you to join us the next four Thursday evenings as we study the book of Amos, or to join with Sheila and the others on Friday mornings as they finish their study of the book of James. John John Wesley famously has said that there is no holiness but social holiness. And while this is often taken to mean that there is no holiness apart from works of mercy, which is also true, what John meant was that we cannot be holy in isolation. Our understanding of God's word is enriched when we study that word together. I can testify that even as the person who writes the reflection questions for our Bible studies and as someone who spends time studying commentaries, I always walk away from our group discussions with questions and perspectives that I would not have thought of on my own. But if your schedule or health does not permit you to join and study with others, I still hope that you will find time to read God's word on your own. As we travel the next 42 days together, let us all grow deeper in our love of God in our trust in God's grace, and in our understanding of God's word, 
so that when the voice of the enemy presents us with temptation, we can be as confident as our Lord in clinging to God. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God of the wilderness, walk with us along our journeys. Safeguard us from the temptations of the enemy. Fill us with your grace and your love. Sustain us on your word. Amen.